Hello and welcome. This is the LCU Podcast, a podcast that brings you stories, insights, and people from Lubbock Christian University. I'm your host, Keegan Stewart, and I'm happy to be with you for another episode. On today's episode, we visited with special guest, Marty Solomon. Marty is the host and creator of the Bama Podcast. He's also an author and the president of Impact Campus Ministries. We visited about Marty's journey, both professionally and spiritually, how and why he started the Bama Podcast, and he even shared some thoughts with us on how to best walk with college students in 2023. I hope you enjoy this episode with Marty Solomon. Especially excited for today's episode, a very unique one. Uh, Co-hosting with me is our CFO at Lubbock Christian University, Tim Miller, and his wife, Diane Miller, is here, is going to ask Marty a question a little bit. But first, I want to say a big thanks. Marty, thank you for being here. It's a joy to be here. I've I've been to LCU before. This is my, man, maybe my third trip here, and every time is wonderful. This is no no exception. But it is your first time on the LCU podcast. So. I keep, it gets, it's getting bigger and bigger every time I come here. Yes, sir. Well, we're super thankful you're here. And if you would, just to start us out, we're going to hit a lot of different angles and areas today. But could you paint the picture of your background, your upbringing, uh, your spiritual walk at the beginning to where you, you know, you start now? We'll, we'll unpeel some of that later, but your right. background. Right. Yeah. So I was always raised in an evangelical, what I would probably call lightly fundamentalist upbringing. It wasn't radically traumatic or anything like that. It was just the joke I usually say is Dr. James Dobson was the fourth member of the Trinity in my home. So um, I was raised in a Dutch Reformed um, denominational upbringing. Um, always went to church, always wanted to do that stuff, felt a call in the ministry towards my end of high school um, and headed towards Bible college. Went to That was my first introduction to the Independent Christian Church and Church of Christ tradition and the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. And um, I went to school there, started pastoring uh, one of their churches. Um, it was kind of during my first few years of ministry where I started realizing that all the stuff that had been so neatly packaged in my mind uh, just wasn't working for me anymore. And so I was going through uh, what we'd call deconstruction today. We were using that word differently back then. Um, but uh, yeah, going through my own little unpacking of my faith um, and kind of in a tailspin for about three months. I'm pastoring a church. I'm not... Uh, I, I don't even know if I believe the stuff that I'm really putting out there. Um, and I had really great mentors, mentors that kept trying to crack a window or open a door and and show me something spiritually until something was helpful and something clicked. And somebody handed me a new hermeneutic, a new way of reading the Bible. And um, through the historical lens of the Jewish world of the scriptures, through the first century lens of Jesus and and his followers and that just led me down this deep rabbit hole. I got a, I got a study with Ray Vanderlaan in Israel and Turkey, and that deeply, deeply shaped my ministry and my spiritual walk, most importantly, and then that ends up shaping my body of work. So, Marty, uh, my wife introduced me to uh, the podcast probably in 2022, and I, um, <clears throat> I tried to avoid it for several months until she kept on <laughs> – she kept bugging me with it and finally started writing some stuff down on my whiteboard. And I was like, what is this? And started listening to it. And um, as I've listened to it, uh, I've got a little bit of history and realized that this 
started in 2016, the podcast itself. And now when you look at the, the number of places that it's being used across the world, it's, it's exponentially grown. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of your journey through that and, you know, what you expected of it and where it is today and kind of the surprise it, it has been. Yeah. I mean, Bayma started just, it wasn't even a podcast. It was just a class that I taught with college students, an informal class at that. I got into campus ministry after my time in Israel and Turkey, really wanting to experiment with the stuff I had seen there and the stuff I had learned and wanting to build a body of work. I'm a teacher by gifting, by passion. And so I wanted to build a body of work that I could that I could teach students, that I could disciple students with. So I was on I was on two different college campuses twice a week, just doing a class. And at, at some point, my job changed about five years after being a campus minister. I started serving as the president of Impact Campus Ministries, and I needed to travel more. And we weren't trying to start a podcast. We were just using a podcast to put our content in an accessible way to our college students is all we were doing. Um, and, and we did that for, and we knew that people could listen to it. We knew that people would listen to it, but we weren't trying to start a podcast. We didn't really think anybody would stick through that long of a journey on the podcast. And then we realized two years later, we had, uh, we had quite a bit of people listening to it. And then we changed podcast hosts and got more data and realized we had way more people listening to it than we realized. And ever since then, we've just kind of been trying to steward this 200-pound baby of a of a situation of of how do we God's brought this to our table, we didn't intend to create it. It's uh, uh, we hope a blessing to everyone else and us. And so how do we how do we steward that well? Hopefully with enough character and integrity that we don't have to make another podcast about the rise and fall of Bayma or anything like that. So that would be our our great goal. <laughs> I want to hear a little bit more about the behind the scenes of the podcast, uh, Marty, uh, I myself am a listener with a group of three other guys and we've been going through, uh, we've been, been in a Bible study for four years. Uh, our subject matter right now is listening to Bema and then talking about it. Uh, what goes into that? What goes into, okay, we're going here now. And I know you're going through it chronologically in some ways and you have a structure in yep. others, but when you get with Brent and you say, okay, on Friday we're doing this, we're hitting this chapter, this story from the Bible. Yep. How do y'all get ready for that? Yep. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty streamlined and straightforward. And the beauty of that is Brent Brent had done Bema as a class over two times when we got started. So he had already gone through Bema two rounds. When he kept showing up, I was like, Brent, you've already done this. And he's like, I know, I'm going to do it again. So he was so familiar with my work that we almost, it's like a great quarterback wide receiver that just have worked together, you know, like Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, if I had to pick a couple, um, they've just played together for so long, they know they can anticipate and Brent has that. So it's really minimal. We have a Google doc that we'll use to put some notes out maybe a a week ahead of time. Um, I'm doing my research. Brent's going to do his research right before the episode and, and pull some things together. But really all the work is on Brent's side of production. We, we have worked together long enough that um, we kind of know. And now, I mean, once you get deeper into the podcast, you realize in season six, we, we widen the teaching team. We add three new teachers. And that's actually made it, it's probably more work, but it's better work. It's just better to have more voices on the team, more diversity of thought. Um, they share the workload. 
their episodes are way more like they've put more work into their episodes. If they were to be sitting here and you were to ask this question, they'd have a different answer than <laughs> I do. Cause I have this other job that I have to do. So I, I probably put in five to 10 hours a week on the podcast. Um, but that's how, that's how it goes. So <laughs> being, being early on into the podcast, I, I sometimes get a kick out of the questions that you ask Brent. And sometimes I'm listening to the questions you ask him like, Oh, I'm glad he didn't ask me that because I wouldn't know the answer. But do you feel like you could ask Brent some of those questions like, hey, you went through Bama twice. You should yeah. know this. Uh, yes. And one of the greatest things we ever did was have Brent as a co-host. That was all his idea. I remember telling the class one day that I was going to do a podcast. And I got done praying and Brent was standing in front of me saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to produce your podcast for you. And I hadn't really thought through the details. And I'm so glad he did. A, for the production, but B, the co-host relationship. So many listeners have said, I love Brent. I can relate to Brent. He's like my little priestly representative because um, <laughs> he doesn't know the answers and I don't either. But the the fun thing as you keep listening to the podcast over the years is you really see Brent grow and uh, you see me grow. It's not just some patronizing comment about Brent, but it's so much fun to watch us. But I will say specifically Brent, find a voice and really find a way to fit in as not just a co-host and a facilitator, but as a, as a, as a, a member of that teaching team, it's really been fun. What's your favorite thing about podcasting and what's the hardest thing about it? <sighs> um, you know, I love podcasting. Um, my favorite thing is creating materials that people can hear that people, I tell people all the time at these events, like I get to do what I love, which is talk about the Bible and, and the context of the scriptures and people say thank you. And that's a great gig. So whether I'm recording YouTube videos or podcasting or teaching live in person or preaching on Sunday morning, I love being able to use my creativity to communicate truth and have, have, have the lights go on, have it help people find out who God is and what he's doing in their life. That stuff just jazzes me. I'm not sure what the hardest stuff was. When I got started, the hardest the hardest thing was not having not having you, you couldn't see your audience. Like you couldn't you're just talking into a blank nothingness. And you can't see laughter, you can't see reactions, you can't I've since gotten used to that. It doesn't bother me at all. But when I started, that was the hardest thing about it. A little tovu vavahu. Oh yes. Great <laughs> reference. So you kind of brought it up just a second ago with the um, the new voices that you have on the podcast in season six, was it, or seven? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so give us a little bit of background on El Grover Fricks and Josh Bosse and Reed Dent. Yeah, uh, three people that I just love dearly. I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner. Um, I, my brain just is such a mystery to me sometimes. Like I just didn't think about adding people to the team. I didn't think that it was even possible. And then one day everything clicks and I go, oh, here's two names. And then the next day I took a walk with Josh Bosse and I went, oh, there's another name. And and that was just so wonderful. But Josh, I'll start with Elle. Elle was a student of mine in my earliest days of Bema. She was a WSU student um, getting her secular degree in I think counseling or therapy of some kind. And, um, and one of the first WSU classes. And she graduated and decided she wanted to go study uh, she, she, she worked for a little bit and then decided she was going to go get her master's in biblical Hebrew. And she did, she lived my dream of going to Hebrew university. She's got more degrees and more study under her belt than any of the rest of the team. And, uh, 
she'll gladly remind us all the time that she has to because she's a woman and that's the way that it works. She has to be the smartest person in the room uh, in order for anybody to listen to her. And I love her reminding us of those beautiful things. Um, not beautiful, that that's the reality, but a beautiful reminder that, that it is the reality. Uh, and that's Elle. And she's, she's an Enneagram 8 like me. Uh, she's spicy and she's and she's all the things and she is by far one of the crowd favorites and then you got reed and reed is one of, reed's one of my best friends and he's a more a philosophical thinker and i love that about him i love his ability to use words um and he's a different flavor because he's not um this deep theologian and he's not an academic and He's almost more of a poet. He's like a poet preacher. Like he, his favorite person is Frederick Beekner, and I think that comes out of his own personality. Um, that's fitting for him. And then Josh was another. He was never really a student student in my ministry, but he he married one of my alumni, and was always kind of in the student circles with us. And he had his own experience with Judaism. Um, before I had met him, he had gone and kind of been with an Orthodox Jewish teacher for quite some time. So he brought that same. And we, from the moment I, we met Josh, I met Josh, there was just a kindred. Um, we shared a, uh, just a common way of a, a worldview. There was hardly any, uh, any clash or friction. And so it was a joy to have him step onto the team too. And he's more of a, um, what do I, what do I call him, the mystic? He's almost more of the mystic voice. So we have the mystic, the philosopher, and the superhero with L, I don't even know what to call her. She's a little bit of everything. So there you go. <laughs> and Josh seems to share a, uh, a similar beard link with you as well. <laughs> he he is the one guy that could outdo me with facial hair. Uh, I just I let mine grow and I just leave it. He 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 cuts his and keeps growing it all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, jealousy. So a little bit of a switch of gears, but uh, kind of gave us kind of alluded to in your kind of your spiritual walk. But um, you know, there's there's a a point in your life where you say, you know, kind of question what's going on here. And instead of kind of pulling away, you actually dug deeper. Was there a watershed moment there? Um, I don't know if I was aware of that. Uh, I kind of talk about that in my, in the first chapter of the book. Um, I don't know why I assumed that, but the, uh, the evangelical kind of that more fundamentalist world that raised me I had all kinds of questions, and eventually I had all kinds of problems, but two, two problems I never had was Jesus and the Bible. Jesus makes sense because I had mentors that had deeply shaped my um, intimate awareness of who the person of Jesus was. Like I didn't have an academic idea of Jesus. It wasn't the historical Jesus. It wasn't a theological Jesus. It was the person, the resurrected person of Christ in my life, and that comes from my mentors who just continually sought that in front of me and taught me how to seek that. Um, the Bible, I, I was always fascinated with the scriptures. I always wanted to do, that was a little bit of my academic nature and that, that never, so I always wanted to lean into those things. And those things have always proven to catch me. Like my church traditions, my theology, that, that could be broken. I could, I could change that all the time. But Jesus and the Bible have always been these things where well, those things are big enough. If the whole floor falls out from underneath me, Jesus and the Bible will catch me on the other side of that. And, yeah. and that's always been something I, I've never really consciously realized the conviction of, but I've always experienced it. So Bema is entitled Bema Discipleship. Mm. And um, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus 
calls on his disciples to go make disciples. Does that look different today in today's world than it did in that context? Well, Marty of 10 years ago would have jumped all over this and said, absolutely, Tim, it does. And let me tell you all the reasons why. <laughs> uh, now I'm a little less, I, I, I don't know. Here's, here's what I can tell you. One of the greatest things, one of the greatest passions I came back from Israel with was seeing the rabbinical first century method of discipleship, where a rabbi calls these Talmudim, um, and, the, and that's, that's that Hebrew word. Talmud is the Hebrew word for disciple. Talmudim is plural. Um, and, and it means more than student. There are other words you could use in the Hebrew for student. There's actually another root word connected to Talmud. But a Talmud is a deeply committed, like in the Arabic, the word is Talib, and the plural is Taliban. And that's not a comment on Islam at all. It's more of a way of connecting with the, with the depth of commitment, the fire in the bones of somebody who is a, an Eastern student. So a Talmud was somebody who, who did drop their nets, and they followed a rabbi 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They weren't just showing up every morning to hear him teach. They went everywhere he went. They slept where he slept. They ate what he ate. They did the things that he did. Their goal was to mimic and imitate him. That was discipleship. And it was something that very few people did. It was less than 1% of the population. And I think in today's world, and especially in our corner of, of, of Christianity, our, our tradition likes to kind of equate the word disciple and believer as the same thing, which is fine. I, we can use words. Words are, words are tricky. Um, so I don't have some deep-seated commitment that we have to change the language we're using. But when we say discipleship today, we mean spiritual formation. Or we mean Thursday morning at 7 o'clock at Starbucks. Or we mean, like mega churches will use discipleship as church assimilation. Like it means showing up and then getting involved in a small group and, and then becoming a leader and then becoming a leader of leaders. And we're just making disciples like Jesus did. And I can promise you Jesus was not running a mega church small group ministry. All these things are, are good things. We don't need to stop doing any of them. But there was something that I was seeing in the first century that we were not doing, generally speaking. And that's why I got into campus ministry to toy with that. Now, you specifically mentioned the Great Commission. And I've always wondered, you know, church historians tell us that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. I totally believe that. I think our Greek is just not what I want to look at. Because if he said it in the Hebrew, I could have, I could, I could have some insight um, into what word he used. Because in the Greek, we have the word methetes. And methetes just means all of the above. Student, disciple, everything's methetes. So when he said, go and make methetes, I want to know what kind of methetes he meant. Did he mean go and make students, believers, um, converts, whatever, however we want to read that? Or did he mean go make disciples like I have made disciples of you for the last? Because that's something in their world very specific. And I'm becoming less and less confident that he was saying the latter, but I always want to remember that he could have been. And I think some of us, it's not a call for all of us. It is not a call for all of us. It is not a call for all of us. But I feel like some of us should be trying it um, and seeing what happens with that kind of discipleship. Within the context of Impact Campus Ministries, what are some of the things that y'all do uh, to chase after that, what you just described? Yeah, so all of our ministries would adhere to our mission statement of pursuing, modeling, and teaching. What I love about that three pursuing intimacy with God, um, uh, modeling that pursuit in front of college students. Like there's a physical proximity. We're not just saying, we're not telling students to go memorize the Bible. 
we're memorizing the Bible in front of them and telling them to memorize it with us. So there's an imitation, there's a mimicry. And then teaching them, you can imitate something and mimic it and truly not understand it, truly not possess it, truly not. And so teaching takes it beyond the mimic me to understand it and be able to give it to somebody else. So that pursue model teach formula for us, I, I love I have and that's before me. I didn't I didn't put that in impact. That has pre-existed me since long before I was a part of the organization. But that three-part model mimics this imitation of a of a of a disciple imitating a rabbi. And I've always loved that. For me personally, I wanted to go so far as to um, you know, we lived in a house and we would rent out the next door apartment so that students would live. We would literally try to do life together. We would eat breakfast together. We would do our spiritual practices together. We would walk on the campus together. We would do classes together. When I went to go do meetings in the afternoon, they would have some of their own meetings. Like they're, they're literally trying to do what I do every single day. Um, and it got a little like we had to stay really connected to our local church because that, that could look like a cult real quickly. Uh, where you start living together. And it's like, are we building a commune? What are we doing? <laughs> but we did want to pursue something that started to resemble what Peter and James and John and all these disciples are doing with Jesus. And it was the most fulfilling ministry that I, I did. Um, and the local church really helped serve as a form of accountability to make sure we never wandered off the deep end or we, we would help run their small group programming and we would attend staff meetings and we were, we were involved in a way to where we were never like on our own, just building our own world. We were building a world with other believers, and that was beautiful. How many colleges and universities are y'all at in the United States? We have about 12 teams uh, at Impact right now today. Um, we are on, depending on how you want to count it, probably 20 to 30 campuses, just depending on what, what justifies a student involvement on a campus. But yeah, we've got uh, kind of we've got three in the Pacific Northwest. We've got one in Cincinnati. We got a team in Florida. We got four teams in Pennsylvania. So it's a team in uh, South Bend. It's uh, it's been a fun little. We got a team in Las Vegas. Each one has its own unique, beautiful context. So it's, it's fun. Here at LCU, our brand promise is we walk with you. Yeah, a goal of all staff, faculty, and people of the community to do that with our students. Beautiful. In in whatever whatever spot they're at. How does that hit you as you hear it? How does that correlate with the work that y'all are doing at, at Impact? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've got to at least be able to do that or else we're not doing, we're not, we've got to be able to do life together better in our context and in, in the Western evangelical world. Um, so much of what we have done has only heightened our sense of individualism, consumerism, we need more community. We need more connectedness. Social media makes us feel connected, but we've ac actually sacrificed connection in the name of, of the pseudo connection or a superficial connection. Um, I just was listening to a podcast today that talked about we, we exchanged followers for friends. Mm. Um, and, and so doing life together, I love that. I love that, that phrase. Right? Well, what are some future goals that you have for Impact Campus Ministry yeah, where where do you want to see that organization go in the future? Well, we need we need more staff. Um, we always need more staff. Uh, anybody that's interested in being in ministry that loves to would would love to experiment with raising funds. That's the great hurdle to overcome. But people that are willing to raise funds, man, we've got three or four teams that really 
really need some additional staff that are trying to build for the future. We've got team leaders that are getting ready for retirement, and they've got a ministry they're ready to hand off um, to the next generation. So there's that. And the other thing is that we're wanting to build a larger and larger mentoring network mm. for our alumni as they graduate college campus. Um, and we're just getting started. I wouldn't say we have the vehicle for that built yet, um, but we've talked about it and we got some blueprints. Um, we're wanting our, our students when they graduate our ministries to know that there are other people out there that know what it is to do the thing that Jesus is calling them to do. And then other people that when they go through, um, I mean, God forbid, they go through a divorce, they lose their job, they have to declare bankruptcy. There are people that have gone through that before, and they have mentors to help walk them through that. Ultimately, the church can and should be doing those things, but campus ministry should be helping the church facilitate those connections. And so those are some of our goals. We're just we're just starting to build some of that some of that out. So just within the last few years, we've seen a lot of changes, you know, with COVID and all those types of things. Has that impacted students coming onto campuses? Um, not I have not been able I have wondered, and I'm not confident enough in my own ability to to see some of those things, to say, yeah, and here's what I think. I sometimes I wonder, um if, it, just, it depends on the week. Catch me on one week and I think, and the next week I'm like, oh man, it's the exact opposite. So I don't really know. And I think we'll have really good research. We still aren't quite far enough out yet. And we're going to have a really good sense of what what that did. In some ways, some things have gotten better. Um, in some ways, things have gotten way more challenging. I know just on my campus ministry aside, my local church used to be full of college students just because of the physical proximity. And we literally watched almost an entire generation of college students basically have to do college away from campus. Because mm. the ones that were freshmen were seniors. And and anybody in between was done on college campus. And the new people that came in, there's a two-year gap where usually you're a freshman, you're kind of watching the sophomores in front of you. You're watching the juniors. You're watching this. They, they weren't there. They physically weren't there. And so you're almost seeing a new reality on college campuses that has built its own identity apart from that passing on of one class and one year to the next. And that's been kind of kind of tricky to watch our church just a disappearing of a huge chunk of students and now almost having to build that up again. That's weird. Yeah, so building, building a community from scratch in some ways. Yeah. Now, on the same time, I think we've got some insight on how badly we want that and how badly we need that and we're more ready to use some of the tools that we weren't using before. So some ways, we always have enough stuff to build the world we need to build. God's always good about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's been, <laughs> I was just listening to another conversation with the uh, the Surgeon General this week talking about that loneliness epidemic. And I just found it to be super insightful for a non-faith-based conversation. It was full of some really faith-based insight and, and there's some real things we're gonna have to tackle. Considering some of those those problems that college students and people in general are facing today, what advice would you give to us, Marty, as, as a Christ-centered university that wants to walk with these students based on the things you've seen? What advice would you give us that, that, we, could, that we could do to try and counteract some of these trends and problems that students are facing today? Um, so that's a great... Great question, uh, Keegan. I'll start by saying I don't know. Um, uh, if we can somehow, if we can somehow figure out how to engage um, 
engage the work that we're being called to. Um, it's a Christian university. I'm sure some people are being called into ministry and or missions fields, but I, I'm sure there's also plenty of graduates who are called into what we might call a secular workspace and workforce. And, and yet that is where the actual action is. Um, the only reason that, that those of us that are called into a ministry space like me with a podcast and a fancy book, the only reason that we exist is to remind all the rest of us that they're actually where the action is. And so, um, especially as a Christian, like the reason that campus ministry exists is on a secular university, I feel like they're always getting nine-tenths of what they need. Like mm-hmm. the, the university's great at giving them the training and the tools and the information. And the one thing they don't have is the Jesus piece, where here you get to put all 10 of those pieces. You get 10 tenths. You get to put it all together. Um, and so when when these students graduate, when they step into the next chapter, hopefully they have this solid understanding of why the thing they're going to go do, especially in the secular workspace and world, is holy, sacred work, why it's about the proper ordering and stewarding of God's creation. Um, I just said this at, a, at an event the other night. My dad uh, barely he barely survived COVID. He's, he's uh, obviously older, and he's always had some really bad health problems, and he got COVID and almost didn't make it. And for ever since the last two years, he's been on oxygen and just like in this rough situation. And, um, and the doctor wanted to give him a shot in his back and the health insurance, um, had a requirement that he had to do 90 days of physical therapy before he could get the shot. And physical therapy has like changed his life. And I just think of the job of like a PT, a physical therapist, like it's holy sacred work. Like what, what they're, what they've done with my dad has helped order and steward creation and bring a little bit more wholeness, a little bit more shalom and an impact. And this is what Jesus, and we always, I think we take Jesus's miracles and his healings and the physical dirt soil stuff for granted. And we go, oh yeah, he's doing cool stuff. But he's, he's bringing more shalom to the physical creation. And so many of your students and graduates are, they're gonna go do the same thing. Whether they own a tire shop, but we're, we're all taking creation, we're ordering and stewarding it, and we're either, we're either tearing the world apart or we're putting the world back together but nothing neutral. Um, and so everything that we're going to go do matters deeply. And the less ministry it is, the more it matters mm. in some sense, the more spiritual it is. And that's just a helpfully, healthy reminder for me. Mm. Thank you for that. I want to preface my question with a little bit of a personal comment that um, your teaching on creation and the Sabbath, mm-hmm. and the rest that we have in God, and what he wants for us in being able to rest in him and in trusting the story has brought such a different perspective to my life um, that shifting the conversation here to mental health mm. and mm-hmm. You talk on your podcast about working with counselors and the growth in the counseling professions and um, in uh, even LCU's own degree programs in counseling and that field exploding. How can we as a university bring that God rest perspective to the anxiety of our, our student generation? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, really appreciate that question. Speaking of vocations that bring order and shalom and wholeness to the world and healing, um, a great example of that. I know, I know for me, therapy has played a a critic the critical role in my own spiritual formation and development. It turned on um, lights for my own self awareness about things that I needed to process, particularly as a leader. Like I, I can't even imagine being a spiritual leader, a pastor, uh, let alone a content creator or an influencer. I put air quotes on that. Um, like I can't even imagine doing that and not being dedicated to the work of therapy and counseling. It's just been so unbelievably critical um, that I need to be making sure that I'm I'm healthy. Now to your to your question. Like I feel like those those schools of thought beat us there, and what I'm doing in the podcast is adding a theological element, but it's not, it's almost like I'm catching up. I was just talking to somebody again this week that was talking about being in church and listening to the pastor say things that they, as a professional licensed therapist, was like, "Oh, that is so wrong and destructive." And like these schools of thought, they they knew this. They intuitively knew this. They they scientifically knew this. They they were already there, and theologically, we had continued to build a world that wasn't bringing order and shalom. It was bringing more chaos. It was, and so so really to catch up and and say, I mean, that teaching on Sabbath, that teaching on creation, that that creation is good, that God loves His creation, and that the invitation is for us to fundamentally remember that before like that's where the story begins that's the first story in our bible that's god's opening lesson is the goodness of creation and an invitation to sabbath before we get to sin before we get to rebellion before we get to the fall or anything that we want to call it god's like you have to fundamentally understand where the story begins it will also be where the story ends spoiler alert um but where the story begins because what you believe about god and who he is and how you fit into that will shape your psychology and your mental health more than if you're a deeply committed spiritual believer of any kind of of many faiths it will it will deeply shape your your psychological health more than almost anything that that paradigm of who is god is he angry with me is he disappointed in me is he is he like a proud parent that shift and sabbath is supposed to be this reminder that reminds us a he's the parent not us and he does love us and he does love his creation that fundamental shift will change pretty much everything and so yeah i i I feel like those professions those therapists those counselors have been trying to teach me this they've been trying to teach all of us this and and we just kind of kept layering bad theology on top of it and maybe part of what we're doing and able to do today is try to have a better reading of the Bible and maybe a little bit better theology that facilitates more shalom. Yeah. I thought this was going to be a more dramatic shift in questions, but it kind of plays along with that in, in your book and in the podcast, you talk a lot about paying attention to those weird comments, those, those words that just seem, it just leaves you with the weird. I, this doesn't make any sense. Right. And we spend a lot of time trying to make them make sense from our Western approach. Talk about the difference in hermeneutic of how to approach those. Right. So it's the relationship we have with problems. Like there are problems in the Bible. 
we have been taught in the Western world and through the age of apologetics to kind of resolve those problems, to explain those problems. But the Easterner who wrote the Bible and the Easterner who originally read the Bible, those ancient audiences, were more used to the, they believed in the process of discovery. So they were trying to communicate truth, but they weren't trying to just transfer data. They wanted you to discover truth. They believed that if you discovered truth, you had a much more intimate relationship and a much more intimate buy-in than if you had just been told truth, which means the biblical authors are trying to bury, not Bible code, it's not code, but there are literary devices that we can study at any fine institution when we, when we look at ancient Eastern literature. There are methods that the Eastern teacher uses, that the ancient Eastern author uses to bury, to bear, to bury a point in a story and when we discover it, the lights go off. And that that burying, the treasure map, usually begins with those problems. And so learning to retrain our brain to not immediately resolve the problem, but to notice it and then start to look and look even further. So to even use some rabbinic wisdom to explain that, the rabbis will point out that Moses, he, he, that bush that was burning in the desert, it wasn't the burning bush that got his attention. It was that the bush wasn't being consumed, which means that Moses has to be paying attention enough that he realizes the bush isn't like a gas fireplace, uh, I had a rabbi teacher tell me. If you, you can just look at a fireplace and be like, oh, it's a fireplace, but how do I tell if it's a gas fireplace or not? I look at the logs to see if they're like, Moses had to be paying attention to realize that that bush wasn't being consumed. We have to teach ourselves and train ourselves to not look past those things, but to stop and give attention to that stuff so that we can find that there's actually some treasure buried in these stories. Yeah, in some ways, it's kind of like learning how to wrestle with Scripture because God likes to wrestle with us too. Absolutely. Apparently, he named his whole nation of people after this wrestling match, <laughs> which is this weird story of you're like, well, why would you want to remember this story? It's kind of like, it's like this slimy, demanding, you need to bless me, and it's like, this is the moment you want to... And, Jesus is, and God says, yes, this is the moment. This is... This is why I'm here to work with you guys. It's because you're not going to let me go. And let's do that. That wrestling, Marty, how do you see the Holy Spirit's role in that, in that wrestling, the tension between information intake, intellect, and transforming knowledge to wisdom? It, 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 it's the only role, really. Mm. I mean, you're going to have to have the information. The information is going to facilitate that experience. But the thing that we've learned, if we've learned anything over the last 2,000 years, is that whatever we know today, we're, we're going we're gonna to unknow in 400 years. We're just going to learn that we were idiots and we didn't know more stuff. Like We're always learning more about what we didn't know before. That's never going to stop. And so the Holy Spirit is this thing. That's the dynamic process that we're always in. The, the information facilitates what the Holy Spirit is actually doing in the lives and work of his, of his people. And I love the New Testament theology that continues to insist that it's not just the Holy Spirit doesn't just live in Keegan and live in Marty and live in, like, the Holy Spirit lives in all of us. Like, don't you know that you, plural, are the temple singular of the Holy Spirit? That's Paul in Corinthians. Or Peter saying, as you come to him, the living stone, you all as living stones, plural, are being built into a spiritual house, singular. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and so this can't be something that I can just listen to a podcast in my dorm room and discover truth on my own. I have to do this, A, with other people. And at the end of the day, it will never be the actual information 
that I'm consuming anyway. It's always going to be what the information is enabling me to do, what the Holy Spirit's doing with that in my life. And so the Holy Spirit will be the only thing that matters, not even an add-on, not even an expansion pack to the thing that we're doing. But like the Holy Spirit is the only thing that will be utilizing any of this stuff. And without any of that, this is all just bankrupt fluff. Like it's all just knowledge. It's all just whatever. Uh, It's all just data points, which will prove to be somewhat incorrect when we learn more later. But the Holy Spirit can use any of this stuff and has, thankfully, because we didn't, we didn't find the Dead Sea Scrolls until not that long ago. Mm. Like we didn't, there was so many things we didn't know and the Holy Spirit still at work in our ignorance, still at work with people who wanted to love the Lord their God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And so I have to imagine that that continues to be true for us. You talking about Holy Spirit made me think about something you shared with us just a little bit ago, your organization's philosophy on sabbaticals yes. and y'all's intentionality on how you use sabbaticals. And if you, if you wouldn't mind saying a little bit about that and how that intentional process partners with Holy Spirit yeah. to put y'all back on your feet when you get back to work. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, we have a firm commitment that success, we have actually a definition of success on our website where we've defined success as uh, intimacy with Jesus. We believe that success is pursuing intimacy with Jesus in the context of Christian community. Um, And so we've got to make sure that we value the things that actually produce intimacy with Jesus. Part of those things being prayer and part of those things being Sabbath, but part of those things being sabbatical. We have to create the right kind of spaces so that intimacy with Jesus is a premium It's a priority because it is our definition of success. What we did was we worked into our policy and procedure manual um, for our organization a requirement that at least every seven years our staff would have a mandatory sabbatical, 100-day sabbatical. Um, And we kind of looked to the Bible to see that seven-year rhythm. Uh, We kind of stole from that. Uh, felt like that was a good thing to steal. And, um, And we worked into our policies like this is how you, like we have a phase where we, we have a nine-month proposal process where you get ready for your sabbatical. You have to write a proposal. It has to meet all these requirements. We approve it. Then you do the sabbatical, and then at the end of the sabbatical, you have a reporting process because a sabbatical is not just like a 100-day vacation. We've all kind of done that. If we've done sabbatical, it's usually that, and it kind of doesn't work. But sabbatical is this, if we're prepared, it can be this intentional space that we've used because we've gotten ready to use it. And, and so we've tried to become really, really good at that. So that Jesus, and, and it's one example of, we have something called the personal retreat day. What's one of our two, oper, our two organizational non-negotiables um, is a monthly day, paid work day, eight hour work day, where you just step away from your work and you go spend time with Jesus in your prayer journal. And you just ask the question, what is it that you're seeing in my ministry that I'm too busy to see? Mm. These are spaces that we have to mandatory like they have to be this mandatory requirement because if not, we'll find excuses to not pursue them. And what will suffer will be our intimacy with Jesus. And for us, that will be that what will suffer will be success. And we'll replace it with stuff that looks good. We'll replace it with worldly success. Uh, and we will fool ourselves and we'll fool everybody else. And so we've had to make these things hard, hard line, mandatory, non-negotiable requirements, which sounds ridiculous. Like who would not want to mandatory work day once a month you'd be surprised because mm. we're busy we're yep. busy i don't have time for a oh, personal retreat day yes it's non-negotiable we gotta we gotta do that sabbatical oh this is the worst year can i wait till next year nope you knew this was coming it's year seven let's go um because jesus is more important than whatever our calendar had on it 
for you personally, what does Sabbath look like weekly? We have a mantra in our family um, that we use. We rest, we play, no work, God loves us. Mm. Four little elements. And I, I, I did that because my two-year-olds could, could repeat that and, uh, and, and almost understand it by the time they're three or four. Um, so we just use that. We still use that mantra today. My kids are now 15 and 13. And we still will say that, well, should we do this tomorrow? Is that, should we do, what is Sabbath? We rest, we play, no work, God loves us. The whole day is about reminding us that we're loved. One rabbi that I've studied under uh, says Sabbath is a truth-telling day. Sabbath is a day where you tell the truth. And the truth is that God loves his creation. Because the lie is going to be that we have to go do all this stuff. Kind of going back to your uh, question earlier about the creation story. And it's that fundamental truth that is at the baked into the foundation of creation. Um, and and so Sabbath is a truth-telling day. I got to remind myself that God loves me. And so the way that I do that is I don't work because work tells me the wrong story. Work tells me that I'm, I'm loved because of what I produce. I play and I rest because this is the joy that reminds me of the love of God. So we rest, we play, no work, God loves us. And for us, this isn't a very Jewish idea, but for us, Sabbath practice is dynamic. It's always changing. Because when, when, when whatever I'm doing is no longer facilitating the role of Sabbath, when, when I'm doing things out of a sense of obligation and I'm no longer being reminded of the love of God, it's time for me to shake some things up a little bit. It's time for me to do things a little differently. When, I, when Sabbath is becoming self-indulgent, and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I love Sabbath. It's like, it's no longer reminding me that God loves me. It's time for me to change some things up a little bit. Um, and so Sabbath is always this thing we're asking questions about, and we're always changing every three to four months because it's got to be a truth-telling day. It's got to tell me the truth every, every week. Yeah, I love that idea of Sabbath because it's so easy to get into, um, we just work all the time. Or it's very rigid and there's nothing we can do, and it feels like it's more of a burden. And that definition really changes that that dynamic of, hey, this is a blessing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I love Jesus' teaching. One of the teachings he has on Sabbath, he talks about how um, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A reminder of the proper place of... And then he talks about the Lord of Man or the Son of Man being Lord over the Sabbath. And I think we immediately just think, oh yeah, Jesus is the one that gets to call the shots on the Sabbath. I think Jesus' point could be using Son of Man in an Ezekiel sense, which is we're we don't serve Sabbath. Sabbath is the gift to us. And so it's more of a it's more of a comment about you don't serve Sabbath. You're Lord over the Sabbath. When Sabbath needs to because he's entering into this conversation. Uh, critique from the Pharisees, why are your disciples harvesting grain? There's this larger conversation about what is Sabbath's intent? Is it something that we have to obey, this thing that God's lording over us, or is it a gift to remind us of this beautiful truth? And so what do the disciples need to do? Not feed not feed themselves, not pick the grain? or And that's informing Jesus's mm. uh, view on Sabbath. Yeah. So in a different context that my wife and I do, are in um we had a guy explain that if you're doing something it may look like work to somebody else but it's fun to you that can be considered sabbath absolutely and it's always one of the tricky dynamics um jewish tradition jewish wisdom and jewish law will will say creative work is what's melacha is the word in in the hebrew melacha is the work that is not allowed there's avodah and there's melacha and melacha is creative work and that's what god ceased from 
in creation, he stopped doing creative work. And so we're told to stop doing creative work. And so it raises an, an interesting conversation. And yet for me, it's often about changing the rhythm. Like if I was a musician or an artist, I would not be a musician or an artist on Shabbat. But if I were a um, plumber and I loved to play music, I would probably, even though in a lot of ways that may not be something that would that's creative work. How, how could you paint? You're not supposed to be creating. Um, so it's an interesting wrestling match. And again, one of those tensions that I think you don't easily resolve or answer, but one that we ought to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Good wrestling with grace. Yeah. And that's why that mantra for me is so helpful. We rest, we play, no work. God loves us. If I'm a musician, this is, this is basically what I'm doing six days a week. Okay. That says, this is actually work. Um, this is not rest. Um, even if I enjoy it, I love my work. I love doing podcasts. I love writing books. I love teaching the Bible. Does that mean I just, no, I gotta, I gotta turn that off. I gotta have a day where I turn that off. And I remember, even though I love what I do every day, um, this is a day to remind myself that's not where my value comes from. It's not why I'm loved. Um, and that's a good reminder. So we'll switch shift gears quite a bit. One is, um, you mentioned quite a, quite a few times on your podcast about your star rating system for books. Oh boy. (laughs) Um, So would you have any recommendations for someone who's really kind of trying to stretch their faith or really trying to dig into something new? The, the place that I have always recommended people start is with Lois Tourberg um, or Tverberg. I guess I, I was told incorrectly. I was just informed of that this year. Um, But T V E R B E R G Lois Tverberg. She wrote books like sitting at the feet of rabbi Jesus Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, um, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. Her books are full of just beautiful context, and they're super accessible, which is why I love to recommend her books as a starting place. Um, That's almost always where I tell people to start, um, is there. Um, And there are some others, too, uh, that I'm even drawing blanks on even as we speak. But uh, hers is always the place where I go, and I say, start here. You're going to be in good hands as you as you as you read those books, and it's gonna, and and then hopefully like like one of the things I tried to do in my book was put at the end of chapters a whole list of resources that I used, but then also resources that you could keep reading if you wanted to dig deeper. I find those things to be just so helpful um, to dig into. Uh, that's another place you could turn to. Is there a particular book on Sabbath that has piqued your interest or that you would recommend? I know there are a lot of them out there. Yeah. Uh, the one that, I mean, the classic that I still think does the job is The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. It's not a big book at all. He's written some tomes. This isn't one of them, but it is dense. So it's like this small little thin book that is, you have to like take a break every time you read a small little chapter but just full of wonderful stuff. I also think Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite thinkers when it comes to the Sabbath. Um, Sabbath as Resistance is one of his books. Um, and, and, and a ton of great, ton of great work. Um, there is a series that was put out by, was it Penguin House? I can't remember. And one of their books was on Sabbath. Um, and, and that was another great resource there. There, there are some great resources on Sabbath. Obviously, John Mark Comer's work on the ruthless elimination of hurry is very much in that vein. I mean, who could not recommend that work? So, yeah, great stuff. But Abraham Joshua Heschel, 
was considered a Jewish classic and uh, for good reason. What about for uh, impacting college students? Yeah, um, for for me, uh, is it Trent Shepard who wrote God on Campus? I mean, that's an old, that's a older work, uh, it, and it talked about the history of the importance of campus ministry. It talked about, um, if my memory serves me correctly, that's the book that talked about how every revival that we've ever seen, especially on American soil, but even European soil, anything in the classical modern era, every revival has started on the college campus. Um, with young adult students. I just love the history of that to show the the importance of those things. Um, probably not like the most unifying recommendation here, but The Great Spiritual Migration by Brian McLaren has a section towards the end where he talks about the science behind social movements. And part of what he talks about there is if you want to start a social movement, you're going you're gonna to be working with children, youth, and young adults. Um, I'm kind of an abstract thinker. So I've read a bunch of books on campus ministry. There's lots of wonderful books out there, none that quite have tickled my brain in the same way that some larger, let's look at the bigger picture behind this. Uh, when it comes to just Gen Z, um, I have, I'm often just so turned off by the Christian books about generational worldview because they're always arguing that these young kids don't have a biblical paradigm, which I can't think of anything that I find more ridiculous in my mind. Um, but there was a secular work uh, titled Gen Z Goes to College. And I thought, um, and, and we're probably even moving beyond that. These things get dated so quickly. But that work was just so encouraging to me. Um, part of doing campus ministry well would be knowing who you're working with and what they're bringing to the table. And I'm sure we're we're probably right on the tail end of that book's relevance because generations are already changing. COVID's changing everything. Um, but that was a that was a really great resource, one of my favorites. I have a couple of just fun ones for you. At oh, the end hooray. I love Tim, fun and questions. If, and if Tim has one too. So you're talking about Sabbath, and I'm hearing you saying we play. Does, yeah. this, does this include getting to watch your Bengals that have won four in a row and are— oh. Nothing. I mean, that happens on a Sunday. My Sabbath's on a Saturday. It's like a second Sabbath to me. When yeah. they're winning, it's like a second Sabbath. Oh, I got like, So you do Saturday. I do it. Saturday. Gotcha. As a Jewish follower of Jesus, I do sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. But when Joe Burrow's healthy and playing at the top <laughs> of his game, it's like a whole nother Sabbath that just keeps on coming. Um, yeah, I do. I, I love watching sports. My wife is really big into UFC. So one of the things we'll do as Sabbath comes to a close is we'll watch the fight night or a pay-per-view, whatever's mm -hmm. on. So that's one of our favorite things. I'm a video gamer. What do you play? Guilty pleasure. I don't play much. Like I, I'm not on it every night, but I, I'm a I'm a World of Warcrafter. Cool. I've been there. I've been there forever. Like I've been. I'm holding strong. Everybody else has left, but I'm still there. <laughs> Good for you. You don't want to ask any more follow-up <laughs> questions for that. So the last one I had. If you had to make a Mount Rushmore of your favorite Bible characters, who would you put on that? Oh, man. The Mount Rushmore of famous Bible characters. I, I feel like I'm going to need to start with Avram. I feel like Jesus isn't allowed. I feel like for yeah, this exercise. Yeah, we'll keep him out. Okay, good. Yeah. That's great. That feels kind of weird to say, huh? Keep him out. <laughs> I'll He's keep Jesus allowed. out, yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like Avram's going to be one of mine. I feel like I want to keep learning from... I'm trying to figure out which woman I want to put on this mount because I want to keep learning from them. 
Um, and I love the story of Esther. So I feel like Esther probably makes my my mountain. I mean, Mary Magdalene, maybe she ends up being another one on there. I mean, maybe I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make L proud right now, and I'm gonna put Mary Magdalene on my mountain, and then um, I mean I gotta get a New Testament, another New Testament one in there. I mean, I, I've always I've always just had a narcissistic affinity for Peter, <laughs> so why not? We'll say Peter. Yeah, I think he gets a bad rap. I think we misrepresented him. So yeah, him and Thomas. Him and Thomas. <laughs> yep. So Abraham, Esther, Mary Magdalene, and Peter. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's yeah, great. I like that. I like that's that. That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Tim, anything before we go? Well, not a question, but just a kind of a thank you from the book itself. Um, I did not know. I'm 58 years old, and I just found out that there's two different types of plungers from your book. You're welcome. Thank You're you. welcome. This is, I live for these. That, see that light that came on in his eyes when yeah. he said that? I, I live for it. that moment right there, and that's what I live for. So if you're not aware of the book, he doesn't actually explain which one does. So I had to Google it and discover it myself. got to dig. you got to dig a little bit. you got to figure it out. Marty, is there anything that you would like to, to tell our audience about your upcoming plans, books, places you're going to be, anything like that? Um, they can always go to martysolomon.com and find everything they need, including my schedule, where I'm at on book tours. I, I have signed a contract for a couple more books. So uh, those will be coming over the next three to four years. Nothing soon. Um, but those will, but they can always find what they need right there. YouTube channel, podcast, anything they're looking for can be found at martysolomon.com. Fantastic. And on behalf of all of Lubbock Christian University, thank you for coming and spending some time with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. God bless you. Thanks for listening to LCU's podcast. For more content like this, go to lcu.edu.